0: Well, good morning, good afternoon. Thank you very much. This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to the third hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 114th Congress. I want to thank Senator Cardin for his cooperation and support for holding this important hearing. Uh, Today's hearing comes at an opportune time with President of the Republic of China, Xi Jinping, having just concluded his state visit to the United States. Prior to this visit, I sent a letter to President Obama with three of my colleagues in this committee urging the President to demonstrate leadership and deliver a strong message of U.S. concern to President Xi regarding the troubling trajectory of China's foreign and domestic policies. I urge the President to reiterate that China's recent destabilizing activities in East China Sea and South China Sea, behavior in cyberspace, and human rights abuses are actions fundamentally at odds with a country that wants to be considered a peacefully rising global power. China has declared an illegitimate air defense identification zone in the East China Sea and has dramatically expanded its land reclamation activities in the South China Sea. According to the Pentagon, China has created about 3,000 acres of new land over the past 18 months and has deployed artillery, built aircraft runways and buildings, and positioned radars and other equipment. While on a visit to Beijing last month, I had an opportunity to engage a top official from the People's Liberation Army on this issue and came out convinced that Only tough resolve from the United States and our partners can impact Beijing's actions and calculus. I'm convinced that China's actions mean that we must urgently pursue enhanced security measures with our traditional and emerging allies in the Asia Pacific region to ensure future peace and stability. First and foremost, we must enhance the capabilities of like-minded partners in the region with regard to maritime security, starting with the effort recently announced by Secretary of Defense Ash Carter calling uh, called the Southeast Asia Maritime Security Initiative. And we should never miss an opportunity to reiterate our policy as stated by Secretary Carter at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore on May 30th of 2015, and I quote, the United States will fly, sail, and operate wherever international law allows, as U.S. forces do all over the world. America, alongside its allies and partners in the regional architecture, will not be deterred from exercising these rights, the rights of all nations, end quote. China's behavior in cyberspace has also emerged as a serious threat to U.S. national and economic security. Regrettably, well-documented state-sponsored or state-endorsed Chinese activities have not been met with an appropriate response from the United States. Although last year the administration announced criminal charges against five officials of the uh, PLA, clearly that has not been enough to deter future, further bad behavior from happening. I'm deeply disappointed that despite new executive orders issued on January 2nd and April 1st of this year, uh, this administration has not penalized a single entity responsible for national security threats or commercial cyber-enabled activities directed against our nation and emanating from China. On my trip to Beijing, I met with China's cybersecurity minister, Liu Wei, and had a frank conversation about these issues. We agreed that China and the U.S. must continue to talk about building international norms in cyberspace, and we've seen very modest progress on this issue with the cyber agreement announced last Friday. But given the grave threat that China's activities represent to U.S. national and economic security interests, Uh, The administration and future administrations must never hesitate to use the punitive tools at their disposal, such as criminal charges and sanctions, to punish any and all sponsored uh, cybercrime. We also urgently need U.S. leadership to reverse China's deplorable human rights record, which recently included illegal detention and harassment of more than 100 lawyers in China. The United States must have consistent and assertive diplomatic engagement with China to reinforce that all of these behaviors fall outside of accepted international norms. We should build strong trilateral partnership between U.S., Japan, and South Korea in the hopes that it will put the right kind of pressure on Beijing to play by established international rules. I believe that a mature, productive, and peaceful relationship with Beijing is in the national security and economic interests of the United States. This relationship will also help us further our relationship with China in regards to North Korea. Uh, For instance, uh, if we continue to engage China on the threat of North Korea, uh, I believe that we can actually make a difference in North Korea's behavior. It's Beijing that holds the key to survival of the North Korean regime. And it's a message that I reiterated to Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Beijing during our meeting last month. But the actions uh, by China that have been outlined that I talked about today jeopardize our bilateral relations and are not befitting of a peaceful rising global power that China claims to be. And that's what this hearing is about today. Uh, What did the state visit accomplish? this past week to change the state of affairs in U.S.-China relations? Can Beijing turn from a path of confrontation to cooperation? What should U.S. policy be to affect positive change in behavior? I look forward to our witnesses addressing these and other questions today, and Senator Cardin, again, thank you, and turn to you for your opening statement.
1: Well, Chairman Gardner, first of all, thank you for convening uh, this hearing of our subcommittee uh, to look at uh, the relationship between the United States and, and China, the changing landscape of the U.S.-China relations. It's absolutely accurate. And to Dr. Hart and Mr. Johnson, thank you for joining us uh, in this discussion. Uh, as the chairman pointed out, this has been an incredible few days with President Xi here in the United States. Uh, we've had an opportunity uh, to, to be with him uh, at a um, State Department lunch, uh, where we had a chance to hear his vision for the Chinese-American relations along with Vice President Biden and Secretary of State Kerry. Uh, I w- was encouraged by the comments that the, the, the President Xi made at that lunch. Later in the day, uh, uh, we had a chance in a um, meeting in the Capitol to have an exchange in which we could drill down to a little bit more specific issues. I thought that was also very helpful, and of course, I uh, have listened with, with a great deal of care to the comments made uh, with President Obama uh, that the president of China made. So it was a chance to explore firsthand some of the issues. And there, there are reasons. Uh, look, the rebalanced Asia is critically important to the United States. We've had hearings on that. We understand the importance of that region to us economically from security point of view, from an environmental point of view. From all these issues, it's an important region. <laughs> Our rebalance to China depends upon a more constructive relationship with China. So getting this rebalance and getting the relationship with China are very much interrelated. And there's reason for some positive, uh, uh, um, uh, to be optimistic. Uh, What we saw with China's engagement with the P5 plus one on the Iranian negotiations was a positive step, China joining the international community in the geopolitical issue. That was the, uh, incredibly important for the stability of the Middle East. Uh, that's a positive sign. We've also have a common agenda with China in regards to North Korea and seeing the Korean Peninsula nuclear weapon free. So we should be able to figure out a way to engage China more effectively in the safety of the Korean Peninsula. There were some very positive steps taken in regards to the uh, climate change, environmental issues, the announcements that have been made, the leadership demonstrated by China and the United States. Um, any of us who have visited China understand the political uh, mandate. Uh, I don't know, Mr. Chairman, during your visit, I was there for I think four days or three days and never saw the sun and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. So there's, there's quite an imperative for China to deal with the, the problems of pollution and uh, it looks like they are indeed taking some strong leadership uh, as we lead up to the Paris uh, international meetings. All that's very positive. And as you mentioned, uh, there's now a protocol that's trying to be established between China and the United States dealing with cybersecurity issues. Uh, that's also a positive step. But let me remind everyone here of the strong evidence that we've seen to date of China's cyber attack against the personnel records of our federal workforce And that's an issue that won't go uh, without without action, I can assure you of that. That was a very serious breach of uh, of our security, and it put a lot of individuals at risk, and uh, we will uh, certainly want to be able to follow up and hold accountable uh, those responsible for those actions. And as the chairman pointed out, the provocative actions in the China Seas. uh, This is a very dangerous situation. It's very explosive. Uh, And China has been very provocative in its activities, uh, reclaiming land, doing construction on the lands, doing oil rigs, uh, almost encouraging a confrontation with its neighbors. That's very dangerous. And uh, I appreciate Secretary Carter's comments at the uh, Shangri-La Security Conference. Uh, I strongly agree with those comments. And the United States has to make it very clear Although we take no position on the claims as to who the territories belong to, we do strongly oppose provocative actions. We want a peaceful solution and we want it done based upon rule of law not based upon unilateral action of any one country. I do want to underscore that we will not have as constructive a relationship with China as we should if they don't, take steps in a positive direction to deal with their human rights problems. Uh, We saw, uh, maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, a pathway that we thought was positive in opening up uh, some of the rights for their citizens, and we were encouraged because we understand it'll take time, but in recent years, it looks like they're backtracking on their human rights commitments. Uh, We look at the laws they're proposing that would restrict NGOs. When you look at what they've done with, with journalists, Uh, when you look at the imprisonment of human rights activists, all that, the religious freedom issues, what's happening in Tibet, what's happening in Hong Kong, all those raise major flags of whether we're seeing a retrenchment in China on the commitment to human rights. So I took advantage of the opportunity uh, last Friday uh, uh, during the afternoon meeting with President Xi to make sure that those issues were raised. Uh, Vice President Biden mentioned it in his talks, And I know this is an issue that we are gonna put a a major focus in uh, the uh, relationship uh, between China and the United States. Last point is on the economic front. There's some good news, bad news, uh, but bottom line is we still have uh, China that is not protecting U.S. intellectual property rights. We have China that's manipulating currency. It's China that has a huge interest in the U.S. market. Uh, We need to be better in our economic relationships with China to understand that, that there's gonna be a level playing field and we, resp- we expect that they will protect uh, the rights of American producers, farmers, manufacturers. Uh, and to date, uh, we haven't gotten as much uh, as protection as we should for a level playing field and we need to uh, continue to stress those points. So Mr. Chairman, I look forward to hearing from our two witnesses. Obviously, this is a complicated relationship. There are many issues, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's a critically important we get it right. And that we build a stronger, more productive relationship with uh, with China. Uh,
0: thank you, Senator Cardin, and uh, thank you as well. Uh, Senator Cardin serves, as everybody knows, as the uh, the ranking member of the full committee, and so. Uh, to continue to spend time with uh, this committee. We truly appreciate it as ranking member here. So you're, you're pulling double duty, so thank you.
1: Well, don't tell the other regions, but this is the <laughs> most important region. <laughs> exactly, we've been saying that, so thank
0: you. For reinforcement, reinforcement. So I really do appreciate Senator Cardin's continued engagement. Uh, and thank you to uh, the witnesses. Uh, thank you to, uh, to Chris Johnson and to Dr. Hart for being here this afternoon. Our first witness this afternoon is Chris Johnson, and a senior advisor holding the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. An accomplished Asian affairs specialist, Mr. Johnson spent nearly two decades serving in the U.S. government's intelligence and foreign affairs communities and has extensive experience analyzing and working in Asia. Mr. Johnson worked as a senior China analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency and has served as an intelligence liaison to two secretaries of state and their deputies on worldwide security issues. In 2011, he was awarded the U.S. Department of State's Superior Honor Award for Outstanding Support to the Secretary of State. Welcome, uh, Mr. Johnson, thank you very much for being here and looking forward to your testimony.
2: Thank you very much, and thank you for this opportunity to discuss uh, this uh, very important issue. Uh, Distinguished members of the subcommittee, good afternoon, and thank you again for this opportunity to come before you today for such an important hearing. Uh, I've been asked here today to provide my assessment of U.S.-China ties in the wake of last week's summit between President Obama and Chinese President Xi Jinping, and to give my view on where the relationship is likely headed going forward. Uh, In evaluating the summit's outcomes, I would like to focus my opening remarks on the degree to which they have helped narrow the gap between two narratives, one official and one unofficial, circulating in Washington in recent months with regard to bilateral ties. In the official view, uh, there are uh, certainly tensions, areas of discord and tension with Beijing, but there remains a belief that the disagreements are manageable and that given the substantial uh, complexity of U.S.-China ties and the many cooperative dimensions, of the interactions between the two countries, overall the relationship is stable and being managed well. In the unofficial view held by analysts, pundits, journalists, the strategic competition between the United States and China is the dominant theme. And left unchecked, that competition is driving Washington and Beijing toward a so-called tipping point in the race for global or regional hegemony. This view also holds that the disagreements between the two sides are not under policy control within either the Chinese or the U.S. bureaucracies, suggesting that the potential for accidental conflict is high and growing steadily. So against that backdrop, let me turn to a quick analysis of the summit's achievements and also look at some areas where little headway was made. Given the serious tension between our two countries over cybersecurity this year, I think it's safe to say that the most unexpected outcome of the summit was the agreement between the two sides on this contentious issue. Within the agreement, the most significant component is clearly the declaration that neither government will, quote, conduct or knowingly support, end quote, cyber-enabled economic espionage. As President Obama noted in his joint press conference with President Xi, the focus of the U.S. side must now be on ensuring China's actions comport with its words or trust but verify. In fact, we can and should expect that the next time the U.S. side has releasable evidence of this type of activity uh, by the Chinese emanating from China, the administration will present such evidence to the Chinese at a very high level with the full expectation that the responsible parties will be prosecuted to the full extent of Chinese law. And if that doesn't occur, then we should expect the United States to levy the type of sanctions against the offending Chinese individual or entity that were hinted at before President Xi arrived for his visit. President Xi's visit also welcomed some progress in the bilateral economic uh, relationship. One key commitment was both sides' acknowledgement that they have a shared interest in promoting a stable global economy, supported by the multilateral economic institutions founded at the end of World War II that have benefited, obviously, the people of both nations. This recognition is a helpful step toward addressing some of the concerns that China seeks either to undermine those institutions or to short-circuit their effectiveness through the development of parallel institutions, such as the Asian Infrastructure Bank, and other uh, institutions. As with the cybersecurity agreement, however, it remains to be seen whether China's actions will match its words. Commitments from the U.S. side to implement the 2010 IMF quota reforms as soon as possible and to endorse with the appropriate caveats the inclusion of the renminbi in the IMF's SDR basket of reserve currencies presumably will serve as positive inducements to China to remain committed to working within these established global financial structures. President Xi also made an effort primarily through his interactions with senior U.S. business executives in Seattle to reassure the U.S. business community on issues of market access and the promotion of a level playing field, as you mentioned in your opening remarks. Here there was less reason for optimism. Uh, she certainly acknowledged all the contentious issues, but he also seemed to put the blame on the US side to some degree for some of these issues, or to simply suggest that uh, there's no room for US opinion on some of these areas, such as pending legislation before the Chinese legislature that has been of deep concern to US business. Moreover, aside from the agreement on cybersecurity, there was very little progress on the several security issues currently complicating U.S.-China ties. Uh, President Xi showed most no willingness to address U.S. concerns on maritime uh, security, and the fact that maritime security and the South China Sea weren't mentioned at all in the released fact sheet tell us that the two sides are very much at loggerheads on this issue. So taking what seems to be a very mixed picture into account, can we divine with any greater clarity whether the official or unofficial narrative on US-China ties has more explanatory power? As with all complex analytic problems, the truth probably lies somewhere in between as we see elements of both narratives operating in the context of the summit's negotiations and its results. And those same features are likely to be manifest in the relationship going forward. With that in mind, let me just close briefly by highlighting three trends in the relationship that do seem to point toward growing strategic divergence between the U.S. and China. The first is the challenge faced by the U.S. Uh, reluctance to acknowledge China's great power ambitions exacerbating tensions. We've seen this uh, in the U.S. approach to AIB and some other areas. and. I use the term acknowledge China's great ambitions, not accept, uh, because we don't want to be showing our acceptance of of these uh, ambitions of theirs, but we certainly need to acknowledge them because it is causing bilateral problems. The second is uh, the situation where a more capable Chinese military is meeting an underfunded U.S. defense establishment uh, due to the uh, burdens of sequestration and what we've seen there and a more capable defense posture from China. And the third, as was mentioned in opening remarks, is a balkanized U.S. business community that is less supportive of stable bilateral ties. For a long time, uh, certainly the bedrock, uh, China's key asset in the U.S., has been the U.S. business community. And now, because of Chinese industrial policies in particular, we see the the U.S. business community being less willing to advocate for those smooth and stable ties. And I expect that to continue unless we see actions from the Chinese side to move toward a more level economic playing field. Let me end there. And thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Uh, Dr. Hart, our second witness, uh, Director of China Policy at the Center for American Progress. Dr. Hart has worked on China issues for more than a decade before joining the Center for American Progress. She worked as a project consultant for the Aspen Institute International Digital Economy Accords Project. She also worked on, uh, she also worked at the private sector where she provided technology market and regulatory analysis to uh, guide operations in China and has served as a China advisor for the Scowcroft Group uh, and others and the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. Welcome, Dr. Hart. Thank you for being with us today, and uh, please proceed.
3: Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Cardin, thank you very much for this opportunity to speak today on U.S.-China relations. I'll focus my opening remarks on three key points. First, in the run-up to this recent summit, there has been a rising debate on whether we need a course correction in U.S. foreign policy toward China. The U.S. is pursuing a multi-track engagement strategy toward China. It is an eyes wide open engagement strategy. Engagement need not be predicated on the assumption that China will not seek to undermine U.S. interests in some areas. The United States can work constructively with China while also accepting that we have different principles in some issues. We can work along multiple tracks at the same time, expanding cooperation in some tracks while Also, confronting differences and exchanging threats in other tracks. This current strategy is largely effective, but there is a need for tactical adjustments in some areas. We are doing much better on the cooperative side of the strategy than we are at confronting differences and managing differences and addressing differences in the U.S.-China relationship. When it comes to cybersecurity, market access barriers, and maritime issues, progress has been incremental at best. That is because China is deploying new tactics that evade our current enforcement strategies. Going forward, the United States should maintain the current good momentum on cooperative issues like climate change, but we also need to expand our toolkit for addressing difficult issues like cyber and the South China Sea. Second, many experts view the the lack of concrete progress on regional maritime issues as evidence that the U.S. should abandon our engagement strategy and shift towards some form of neo-containment. Those assessments are misguided. Our problem in the South China Sea is not a strategy problem, it's a tactical problem. China is taking actions in that region that violate international laws and norms, namely the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The United States has not ratified that treaty. We do not have a seat at the table when UN tribunals weigh in on Chinese actions or claims. The only levers we have are public statements, military actions, and our ability to create space for smaller claimants to assert their claims. Unfortunately, those levers have not proven particularly effective at changing Chinese behavior. This is an area where the US Senate can significantly improve American influence and American capabilities abroad. Asian maritime maps will not be determined by military might alone. They will also be determined by law. And we and the rest of the world need the United States to be in the room when those legal decisions are made. Ratifying the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea would change the game in the South China Sea. It would enable the United States to play a leading role in setting norms that will shape the region for decades to come. Ratification would also improve our strategic capabilities in the Arctic where the US is sitting on the sidelines and watching Russia and other Arctic nations make new claims that dramatically expand their territorial boundaries in the Arctic Ocean. Third, the climate track has become a groundbreaking action track in US-China relations, and progress on climate change justifies a continuation of the engagement approach that we are currently pursuing. Last November, the Obama administration secured Chinese commitments to peak carbon emissions by 2030 and double the non-fossil portion of their energy mix by 2030. These were groundbreaking commitments. In addition, the peaking Commitment was a bottom-line commitment. China also promised to make best efforts to peak even earlier. In the run-up to this most recent summit, the administration secured a new round of climate peaking commis- Commitments from 11 Chinese cities who are willing to step forward and make commitments to peak well before their nation's 2030 deadline. Three of those cities pledged to peak in 2020, which is only a few years away and a decade ahead of the equip- commitment we achieved last November. This summit also produced groundbreaking progress on climate finance. China pledged 3.1 billion in climate aid to developing nations, an amount that actually exceeds what the U.S. has pledged thus far under the Green Climate Fund. It is important to remember that climate change was not always a positive area of U.S.-China relations. As recently as 2009, this was an area of staunch divide. The United States wanted China to step up and play a leadership role in line with its growing emissions, but China refused to do so. That put our nations on opposite sides in global climate negotiations. However, since then, the United States has used smart diplomacy to turn this dynamic around. Now China is not only doing more at home, they are also working in concert with the United States to drive all other developing countries to do more. We could not have achieved that without working through the US-China partnership the climate arena can serve as a model for other areas of the relationship. It also serves as a reminder that when the US has the right tools for the job and employs the right tactics, engagement can be very successful, even on per- particularly difficult issues. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hart, uh, for your testimony. Uh, and uh, I'll begin with the questions to both of you, Dr. Hart uh, and to Mr. Johnson. Uh, as as you were building up and looking, into, looking up to the 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 meeting, the summit, uh, the visit. What was the one or two things, the takeaways that you had hoped uh, this would result in, the meeting between President Obama and President Xi would would result in, Uh, and did we get there? Where did we fall short? And how do we continue the conversation going forward? Uh, Mr. Johnson, Dr. Hart, feel free.
2: I'll take it first. Uh, I'd say there were two areas that didn't materialize that that I had hoped we would see. One was uh, despite what we achieved on cyber, I found it striking that Uh, There was no agreement, as was much rumored, on a non-first use uh, agreement, especially on critical areas uh, with regard to, you know, non-mutual targeting of of critical infrastructure, these sort of areas. Uh, This seems like something that's a bit of a no-brainer, actually, from from my perspective, and the fact that we can't seem to come to agreement on such a core issue uh, is quite striking. I think the second area where we did see some but not enough was the two leaders coming out on the margins of their meetings and even in President Xi's speeches and so on to talk about how the two countries, as they did after the global financial crisis, are working together to calm volatility in global equity markets uh, in particular. Uh, with President Xi, I think we could have and would have liked to see more explanation about what's been happening in China in their own equity market, uh, the move to devalue the currency, things of this area. He provided some explanation, but certainly not enough to be able to uh, counter the worries that that people have about what's actually happening in the Chinese economy. And from our own side, um, insufficient sort of forward looking uh, approach on this to indicate how we intend to work with China to manage this problem. Because when the two countries of the two largest economies are meeting, when the leaders are meeting, uh, the whole world looks to them for guidance on how to think about this issue. And the fact that that didn't come up uh, was was disappointing. Thank you. Dr. Hart.
3: I was really watching for three issues in the summit. One was positive, two, two were fairly positive. So first on climate, I was hoping to see the language that we did receive from the Chinese on um, moving forward to look at tightening standards for, for overseas investment. China's leading a cumulative $200 billion in new overseas investment aid, and we need to make sure that aid goes in positive directions that support rather than undermine U.S. interests. For example, we don't want China building dirty coal plants all over Asia with some of that overseas aid. And there was some language within the climate deal that points towards some increased agreement and progress on that issue. And is basically code language for more cooperation with AIIB investment standards. And I see that as a stepping stone to possibly more progress on this when China hosts the G20 next year. On cybersecurity, I think, this was an inflection point on US-China cyber relations. For quite a long time, it seems that Beijing didn't fully understand how seriously the US is taking this issue. And it seems that Beijing didn't fully understand that the United States is not going to withhold punitive action on cyber in order to protect and save good things on the agenda, like climate change and other forms of cooperation. And it seems that the U.S. succeeded in getting that message across. The fact that Beijing dispatched a special envoy and negotiation team two weeks before the summit to tee up a conversation on cybersecurity indicates that they were taking the rising U.S. concern and messaging very seriously. My own conversations with Chinese counterparts also indicate that there was a shift in understanding of how the U.S. was viewing the cyber issue around August of this year. So it seems that we definitely succeeded in getting improving communication on that issue. We do have a new high-level dialogue for confronting cyber crime, which which could be very influential, but we need to see how that will go. We do have what appears to be a new commitment from the Chinese to uh, not engage in cyber espionage for commercial gain. That commitment, if it was indeed from President Xi personally and if that information is distributed within the Chinese bureaucracy, that should change China's administrative controls for doing commercial espionage. You know, if President Xi has personally made a promise that the nation will not do that, then there will be an incentive to at least restrict the amount of uh, agencies and actors that are allowed to do that within China so that they can keep better track of those activities. We'll have to monitor those issues going forward to see if we have had progress, but to see if our verbal progress turns into progress on actions. The third issue I had hoped for but don't really see much progress as yet is the issue of what role US companies will have in the Chinese market as it moves toward a new normal. China's economic growth is slowing. They're rebalancing the economy. There seems to be a changing mindset in Beijing about what role American businesses will play in that process. In China's first three decades of economic reform, there was a very clear demand for American companies to be there, that they needed American technology and actual American boots on the ground, and they needed to give a certain amount of market access in exchange for that. With this new round, with this new normal, there seems to be a growing sentiment on the Chinese side that Chinese companies are strong enough now to do a lot of their technology development on their own, and they may not need an American presence anymore, and they may therefore feel more latitude to drive forward some market access barriers that would be very damaging to American interests. I was hoping to see President Xi deliver a clearer message to American companies about the type of regulatory treatment that they can expect within the Chinese market and how they view new laws such as the banking cyber law, the national security law, uh, the anti-monopoly law as tools for hopefully fair treatment of domestic and foreign companies. That, we didn't see as much progress on that area as one would hope. Uh,
0: Thank you, Dr. Hart and uh, to to Chris Johnson, you mentioned the issue of critical infrastructure and the agreement that we entered into, uh, or excuse me, that was announced last Friday uh, said, the United States and China agree that neither country's government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property, including trade secrets or other confidential business information with the intent of providing competitive advantages to companies or commercial sectors. As Dr. Hart just pointed out, I mean, this obviously goes to the commercial espionage issue. Why did we hear only or enter into agreement or see an agreement only about commercial espionage? Why didn't it go further? Why was there no uh, discussion about OPM or any kind of agreement of what happened uh, at OPM?
2: I think that's actually the the part of both the special envoys visit uh, that that sort of failed, and, and and the part of the negotiations for the summit itself that failed. In that, uh, you know, the Chinese, their approach to the situation had been largely to suggest that the OPM hack uh, was something of a normal cyber crime, you know, uh, opportunity, and to be very reluctant to, certainly not to admit any role uh, on the Chinese government behalf. The challenge with the, uh, you know, negotiating things outside the economic espionage piece is that in some ways the administration unwittingly and for all the right reasons trapped itself when it initially defined, you know, the the break point, if you will, between traditional espionage which would be uh, aimed at gaining military or or diplomatic or intelligence secrets and economic espionage. Uh, And so in some ways. By our own definition, the Chinese certainly would see the OPM hack as legitimate uh, under those definitions. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Senator Cardin. Well, once again, thank you all
1: for your participation here. I find, historically, our relationships with large countries where we have many, many issues, such as China, that the human rights uh, are always a struggle to get on the agenda. And it's always difficult to make progress. Uh, I saw virtually no progress made during this summit on the human rights front. Uh, there was almost the obligatory comments made by our leaders just to say that we didn't forget the subject, although you question how aggressively it was raised in the bilaterals. It's not unusual. This is a, My criticisms would be with both Democratic and Republican administrations uh, and with the State Department that uh, when you're dealing with the regional secretaries or you're dealing with the missions, the human rights issues don't get the same attention as the so-called security basket or the economic basket or the other areas where um, are, which are more visible. It cries out for congressional action. We've done that. We've initiated human rights actions against major companies, countries, and it's been pretty effective. They've gotten a pretty a lot of publicity on this and really encouraging the human rights activists in countries by the actions that Congress has initiated. Uh, so, my question to you uh, what is the most effective way for us to advance uh, the good governance human rights agenda with China? Does it require the Congress to take some pretty aggressive actions? or do you think this can be one that we can advance through the diplomacy within the executive branch?
3: I think it's important to distinguish between effectiveness and noise. Uh, With China, sometimes the most effective actions are quiet actions, and I would argue that one of the most impactful things the U.S. has done over the past decade is install an air quality monitoring device on the US Embassy in Beijing and put the data on Twitter. That information was a ripple effect. Once the people who had a VPN and could access Twitter started paying attention to that information. They almost
1: had to do that because American personnel working there demanded it. And (laughs) then they realized the value. I don't know if they understood. I agree with you. It was a very visible um, opening of the of the uh, society to to, to, to uh, facts. We have, would you disagree that we have seen a, a backtracking of the commitment on human rights in China?
3: It's hard to say because China's, if you look at NGO freedoms, press freedoms, internet freedoms, they go up and down. They went down in 2008 when there were issues around Tibet. You know, They go up and down, they went down before in the run up to the, the Olympics in Beijing. There's a trajectory over the time and there is rising concern right now that we might be in a downward trajectory and there's concern that with the current leadership it might be that it's only down and not about to come up again. It's too soon to say. A lot of these issues ha- will be determined by the Chinese people. You know, One thing that is new is that the regulations are, there are proposals to extend some of these restrictions to touch Americans, American universities, American think tanks, um, American associations. What should we do? We should accept the fact that China does have a legislative process on some of these issues, and while they're in the middle of a process, engage in that as much as possible. You know, we have to commend them for the fact that with some of these new laws, they gave them a, they gave, they sent us a draft copy before they were actually implemented and asked our opinion. They, they asked us to submit uh, our comments. They asked for NGO you know, media comments on these, these documents. And so that indicates a type of progress that we would not have seen 10 years ago. And on some of these issues, we need to wait a little bit and let the legislative process play out, view that process Me- as legitimate. Meanwhile, people
1: are in prison. Meanwhile, people can't practice their religion. Meanwhile, the journalists are being denied access. Meanwhile, the internet freedoms are being taken away. Meanwhile, 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 meanwhile and I don't know how much patience we should have on this.
3: The, the most important patience indicator is the indicator of the patience of the Chinese people. I think we, we need to look to them as our guide on what is best for their nation.
1: So when they get upset, like Tiananmen Square, we see violence and we see rights taken away. Protests don't work in China. If you try to go to a religious service, they'll close down the doors How do you organize in China? If you're a religious minority, and that could be Protestants, and you're trying to set up a church, and you can't set up a church, how do you protest that?
3: These are important issues. I think our best leadership model is leading by example, showing that the United States is a nation where we can have freedom of religion, we can have freedom of expression, freedom of communication, and be the strongest nation in the world. Um, But on a lot of these issues, we do need to watch the Chinese people and let the Chinese people lead and see where are they pressing most against the boundaries of freedom. And we see that when they all press hard together, they enact change. There's been a radical change in the amount of information available on air pollution in China because the Chinese people drew a line in the sand. And
1: um, look, I agree with you. Environmental rights are human rights. I don't disagree with that. and it relates to health and it relates to a lot of other things. I would tell you I think it had very little to do with the people. From the point of view of protests, it had to do with the visibility. It was something they couldn't hide. When you can't see the sky, you know you have a problem. So it was the reputation of the government, not so much the protests of the people, that brought about a change in attitude in China. Uh, yes, we facilitated some of that because we had to take care of the safety of our own personnel and our embassies. So uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that China will allow their people to speak. And I must tell you, we've taken the same attitude in a lot of countries around the world uh, only to be on the wrong side of history. And the one thing about America, I want to see it actively engaged around the world, but we've got to stand up for what we believe in. And this country brings the perspective of universal rights and human rights for all citizens. And when we leave that out of the discussion, we'll end up getting in trouble for U.S. interests. And I was disappointed in this uh, summit that there was no visibility uh, on the human rights front. Uh, I think it was a major failure. And I think every time you do that, world leaders in countries where they are not exercising rights of their citizens to to, to human rights, saying we can get away with this in our relationship with the United States. And uh, I think that's, a, that's not the right policy for us. You've got to be aggressively involved in these issues. No one else will stand up for it. The United States is the only country that's going to lead on this. And if we don't lead, the rest of the world won't. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Senator.
4: Chairman Gardner, Senator Cardin, thank you for all this hearing. Dr. Hart, three or four years ago in this committee, we had an extensive debate and investigation on the Law of the Seas Treaty with the United Nations, and in the end, the final conclusion was we did nothing out of fear of loss of sovereignty. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. Are there any national, international maritime interest in the South China Sea or the Pacific Rim that are not members of the Law of the Seas Treaty other than ourselves?
3: To my knowledge, there are not. But I'd be happy to check back, check you, that, and submit that for the out. record. Yep, absolutely.
4: Secondly, you and I came in somewhat late on your testimony, Ms. Johnson. I'm sorry, and I heard a couple of yours, but I think the reference was we're actually getting weaker in that part of the world, at, at sea, and the Chinese are getting stronger. Is that right?
2: Militarily, mm. I I just say this. Uh, no, we're we're still uh, we're still number one. The challenge is that. The challenge is that what's happening in the South China Sea is part and parcel of a broader maritime strategy that we see from China, where the message is uh, to the regional partners, primarily regional neighbors, but also to the United States, that Chinese forces intend to operate at times of their choosing, um, perhaps even with impunity, out to the so-called Second Island chain, so out to Guam and and that region, and that the rest of us have to accept it. Uh, And this is a challenge for the United States in several ways. One, uh, while our interests in the South China Sea primarily are related to supporting our treaty allies in the Philippines and the freedom of navigation that we all support, um, you can argue that this, the straight strategic of the interests of the US are not directly affected by what's happening in the South China Sea, but by allowing any sort of you know, show of weakness or that we're not going to maintain freedom of navigation and its importance, there are worries then that extend to other areas where our vital strategic interests are involved, such as the Straits of Malacca and other uh, maritime areas. Uh, Secondly, the uh, issue that relates to this is how will the U.S. sort of maintain the red lines that it's developing uh, with the Chinese on this activity going forward? You know, if you say, such as uh, Secretary Carter did during the Shangri-La Dialogue, we we asked the Chinese not to militarize these islands and so on, what are we gonna do when they do it? Because they're already uh, sort of moving in this direction as we see from commercial imagery and other indications. Well, they're in
4: the process of doing it. Correct. Uh, from a standpoint of both runways as well as what appear to be support technology if not actual technology for intelligence. Exactly. Is being a signatory to the Law of the Seas Treaty any help whatsoever, not be, is not being a signatory in any way hurting our military or our freedom of travel in the South China Sea?
2: I don't know if it's hurting our military's ability to operate, but I agree with Dr. Hart's uh, earlier testimony that it certainly uh, damages our credibility in terms of seat at the table when these issues are being discussed, especially on the legal side.
4: As well as claims in the seabed for rare earth minerals and things of that nature, is that not correct? Because I think that's where that territory is decided. On the, uh, I want to follow up on something that Senator Gardner talked about a minute ago in terms of cybersecurity, and you talked about the OPM breach. We talked about business espionage and the, the agreement between us and the Chinese, but I don't consider the OPM breach, and I, I don't think we've officially stated publicly that China was the one that hacked into OPM, but I think everybody believes it came out of that part of the world. Was there any discussion in the meetings between our president and the Chinese president last week in Washington about? U- the use of hacking into our military assets or our personnel assets in the United States? Not just commercial espionage, but specifically our government assets.
2: I don't, I don't have any direct knowledge of, of, of what was discussed, but I'd be shocked if the issue uh, wasn't very clearly communicated to the Chinese side.
4: But from a, pub- from a public knowledge standpoint, nothing was said about any agreement being... Not, not that I'm aware. You know, last, last comment. In Atlanta next week, uh, Ambassador Froman will be there negotiating what they think may be the last round of TPP or certainly next to the last round. We are talking about, about, about a bilateral trade agreement with the Chinese. Is that correct? What is TPP doing to have an effect on that? Is it helping us to get the Chinese to come to the table on a bilateral agreement?
3: Absolutely. What the TPP process is demonstrating is that in the Asia Pacific region, there are still more strong economies than not that are interested and willing and demanding to join the United States in a high standards agreement. So it's demonstrating that if there's a choice between high trading standards that protect commercial interests and provide a level playing field and the lack of those standards, most countries are going to follow the United States in the high standards direction. And that puts pressure on China to seek to move in that direction as well. And that's something they will have to do in order to sign a bilateral investment treaty with the United States. So it's putting pressure on the Chinese to move in the direction they would need to move to meet the criteria needed to, to sign a bilateral investment treaty with us.
4: To that point, you made three points at the end of your remarks. You talked about climate, you talked about cyber, and you talked about the role of U.S. companies companies in the Chinese economy. Going to that third point, having a bilateral agreement with you, will that help us to get a role for U.S. companies in terms of the Chinese economy in the future if we have that agreement?
3: It should help with um, addressing some of the policies that are of deep concern in the Chinese market. A lot of China's market access barriers, they're not issues that you can fix through the WTO. Right. So if you have a bilateral investment treaty, you can drill down on some of those more specific market access issues. And also, it should provide some new dispute settlement mechanisms. Right now, if American companies have a problem in China, if you bring that problem to Chinese courts or Chinese regulators, the deck is stacked against you. So to the effect that we can help balance out that process and provide a new place to go with company concerns, that would be to our good.
4: Well, the goal is a more level playing field for American competition. Absolutely. Thank you both
2: for your testimony. Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you. I see Senator Markey has arrived. Uh, I guess in the order of things, you would be next, but you also just got here. Do you want to uh, jump in asking questions or do you want us to stall a little bit? Recognizing that uh, he just walked in, if you need some time to... to, to
5: I think I'm okay. Okay, very good, please, Senator Markey. Uh, Thank you. Dr. Hart, I appreciate your focus on areas that we've been able to work with China in recent years. and I'd like to drill down on the energy and climate policy arena. Um, If we were having this hearing a decade ago, we would be focused on an issue involving oil drilling, China's national offshore oil corporation's attempt to buy an American oil company, Unical. That was the big debate. That attempt brought the national security implications of oil consumption for both countries into sharp focus, and of course, as the world's two biggest importers of oil, it still is. We both import about five million barrels a day. We are the two, you know, uh, countries that drive the uh, international market for that discretionary barrel of oil. But a decade later, instead of potential hostility on energy issues. President Obama and President Xi announced on Friday domestic policy steps each country is taking to advance energy efficiency and clean energy, as well as programs to enhance collaboration and cooperation between our nations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the lessons that you take away from the U.S.-China climate and energy collaboration and what that could mean for areas of tension between our two countries right now?
3: Um, So, you know, two things. One is that in the climate sphere, we've seen that we can find a small common interest between our two nations and build that out to bring other areas into alignment. In climate, we did that by focusing first on clean energy, because as you say, Senator, both the United States and China were big and growing oil importers, and so both nations had a common interest in working together to develop alternatives to oil. You know, from the Chinese perspective, homegrown energy is the only homegrown energy they have other than coal. and they cannot continue to use coal in future because of the environmental implications. So we both have a very common security interest in working to develop new energy technologies that do not depend on foreign import markets. And through that process, we've been able to build out a common understanding on the need to do more on global climate change writ large. Through cooperation on clean energy, we've helped China see how it can step up and take more responsibilities in the global battle to combat climate change and do so in a way that boost the economy. It's not a drain on the economy, it's a major new driver of Chinese economic growth. So our challenge going forward is figuring out how we can further build on that area and use it to leverage new cooperation in other areas of the relationship that are still uh, not quite as aligned One that um, I believe has a huge potential (coughs) is overseas investment standards. China is leading the formulation of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Development Bank. They have a South-South Cooperation Fund and also a Silk Road Fund. And those four mechanisms together will be directing over $200 billion and overseas investment to build new projects in Asia and beyond, and we want to make sure those projects adhere to strong environmental and social standards. We've seen the preliminary draft of the AIB standards, and they're not—they're not ideal. There's no ban on funding for coal plants, and every environmental s- guideline they have has a pretty big loophole in it.
5: On the other hand, can I say this? And mm. I agree with you. We have to police that very closely. Um, but on the other hand the Chinese president announced that they're going to build one gigawatt of renewable electricity by the year 2030. Renewables, one gigawatt. Now, people don't know what a gigawatt is. So a gigawatt is 1,000 megawatt equivalent of nuclear power plants. So if you think of A big, big, big nuclear power plant. That's about 1,000 megawatts of electricity taking care of business. So this would be 1,000 nuclear power plants at 1,000 megawatts. They're going to build that equivalent in renewables between now and 2030 in China. And moreover, that's the equivalent of all of the electricity from all sources in America right now. All coal, all oil, all hydro, wind, solar, all of it. So that's unbelievable, huh? So talk a little bit about that and what that revolution means in China and what it means ultimately for the price of solar, for the price of wind, uh, and, uh, and the global installation of that much lower price uh, sources of energy that otherwise wouldn't see that price pressure uh, downward.
3: Absolutely, you know, their 2030 commitment is really impressive. You know, they're basically going to roll out a clean energy expansion equivalent to our entire US electri- electricity generation. Um, they, that is the world's biggest clean energy laboratory experiment because we've never seen that much clean energy technology deployed at such a large scale. So they're going to be driving um, new advancements in how electric grids can incorporate clean power and move those supplies around the country across the grid. One of the advancements in the new announcement that's particularly interesting is China's new commitment to a green dispatch program. Previously, their old strategy was that they built a lot of green energy, but they built a lot of dirty energy too. Now, they're starting to shift so that they phase down and phase out coal, um, primarily coal and other sources of dirty energy, and prioritize clean energy and give it the first spot on the grid. So their new green dispatch program will be eliminating the um, the special access that coal had to the electric grid and fast-tracking, you know, renewable yeah. sources around the nation.
5: Yeah. So back in 1993, I was the chairman of the telecommunications committee over in the House of Representatives. So I worked with my. Friends on the committee, uh, Mike Oxley and Jack Fields, Republicans. And so we passed out a bill that moved over 200 megahertz of spectrum to create cell phones that could be accessible for ordinary families. So at that point, the cell phone was about the size of a brick, it cost 50 cents a minute, and you didn't own one. I mean, that was just Gordon Gecko stuff. This was, you know, the wealthiest businessman in the world. Well, within three years, everyone had one of these in their pocket was under $0.10 cents a minute. It got miniaturized. Uh, it was analog, and everybody was happy with Most it. Most of us don't have flip phones still. <laughs> flip foam. And so this was great. And you know what? It worked. It worked. We moved to digital. It was great. It was more encrypted. Digital is much more encrypted than analog. So this is it by 1996, 97, 98, 99, 2000. Everybody's kind of happy. And then Steve Jobs comes along, and he does an iPhone. Oh, my god. It's like a computer, the size. You know, uh, a size that's miniature and with the power of a UNIVAC computer just 30 years before. And moreover, it's moving so fast that in Africa, we now have 600 million people with wireless devices in their pockets. Who had that on the books right 10 years ago, 12 years ago? So that's what this revolution really means now in solar and, uh, and in um, and wind. There's a real virtuous competition going on now. No, we're going to have even more than you have, but every time you do it the price drops more, uh, the the capacity uh, of the of the devices continues to increase. So just 5 years ago, 1% of electricity in America was renewables, just 5 years ago. Now it's 5% of electricity is renewables. That's how fast it's moving here. China takes note of that. So does in Germany, so do other countries. So it's moving, and in other words, it's moving like this. It's the same pace. You got a brick, you got a, you know, got a clam phone, you got an iPhone. Huh? So once you get that competition going, the free market is wide open, Darwinian, paranoia inducing, at a national level, competition. So, uh, so I thank you for coming because I think that this dynamic energy sector is something that we have to really pay attention to in China. But at the same time, we know that we gotta keep our eye on China, on cybersecurity. We know we have to keep our eye on them and the compromise of the copyright uh, inventions of people in the United States. Uh, and we're gonna have to keep our eye on them in terms of pollution, in terms of what they're doing. But writ large, there's something big that's happening here <clears throat> in terms of this switch over to uh, lower carbon um, uh, sources of uh, energy. and uh, And I think it's actually of where we want to be with China, competing on the good stuff uh, that can transform uh, the way we generate electricity and, as a result, endanger the planet. I Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. And are you still using the, the clam phone,
5: or is that just Lindsey Graham's that you borrowed for a little bit? That's- well, when I have something to do, I actually do use this phone. It's very simple. Uh, when I just want to sit up here and Google something and, look, <laughs> and make it look like I'm really working, then I use this phone. Okay, and I think everybody understands what I'm <laughs> talking about. <laughs> They're doing it right back in the room. Right that's now, right. That's right. <laughs> waiting for me to finish. That's funny. Uh, uh, my goal. Can I tell them my goal? Please, because I could see how many people were looking down while I was speaking, especially the staff in the back. You know, and my goal is that we reach a day when no one ever looks up again. There's never again any human, there's no human contact whatsoever. Everyone is always just looking down at their devices and we would have not, this wasn't booked 10 years ago, right? But it changed everything and the same thing's gonna happen in energy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thanks, Senator Markey. Uh, Just, uh, we'll go another round. If you wanted to stay a little bit longer, we can continue this back and forth, Uh, Senator Markey, uh, if if you want. I wanted to go back to the issue of cybersecurity where we kind of left off. Uh, Mentioned the high level visit that we had from a Chinese official leading up to the summit regarding cyber in response to some of the conversations were going to be held at, this, at the meeting between President Xi and uh, President Obama. And this issue of sanctions that came up, what what sanctions do you believe were, were dangled? What scared them the most into action? And uh, is the thought or the possibility of sanction or further action, OPM, done, Mr. Johnson?
2: Uh, I think the the uh, sanctions that were suggested that were the most effective were uh, those that relate to uh, the sanctioned entity or individual, but primarily entities' ability to engage in financial transactions in the United States, and obviously that has uh, serious implications for a firm that's especially operating internationally, like most of the Chinese firms are these days, for their ability to uh, execute financial transactions internationally. This can paralyze uh, a business's operations, and and I think that was certainly very effective um, uh, in this regard. Uh, the challenge with sanctions in the same manner uh, that there's a challenge with indictments, which we had earlier and you mentioned in your uh, uh, opening remarks, Mr. Chairman, is that uh, it still falls in, while well, more effective than indictments, it still falls into that broad category of sort of naming and shaming uh, uh, approach to uh, to dealing with this problem. Uh, it can be effective uh, from a sort of getting the message out there point of view, but the challenge is that what happens in that instance is that because it's so public, it immediately puts the Chinese on the defensive and gives them very little room to actually be able to react, which is what we want. We want them to change their behavior. So in my own view, uh, while sanctions can be an important tool and should be relied on going forward because it clearly has effect, we also have to think about what we can do in other spaces, in the non-public space, uh, to respond to this challenge from China.
0: In in terms of the national laws that we've discussed here today and, and the issue of cybersecurity and the agreement that was announced, how does the issue of national, national laws, the issue of national security, uh, interact with the cyber security agreement? Are, are the two going to be mutually exclusive? Are they going to turn around and say, I'm sorry, this is national security, therefore the cyber agreement doesn't apply here?
2: Well, the risk is that uh, they will take, as they often do, a broad definition of national security. Uh, And and so that's the challenge. And it really is somewhat unique to their system, if you will, in that they see economic development as critical to national security. Um, They also have a tendency to see sort of the advancement of state-owned enterprises in particular but their economic development writ large as part and parcel of the national security that keeps the Chinese Communist Party in power, which is of course the, the number one goal. So we do have to monitor this issue for blurring, but as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I think what we have with this agreement is a real opportunity for the U.S. to be able to now create some parameters around Chinese behavior in this space and to be able to then present them with evidence when we have it uh, that uh, where there's clear attribution and, and that can be determined. Um, and to expect them to take action. And if they don't, then we will turn to these uh, methods. I think the most effective thing that happened in the run-up to the summit was the administration at all levels communicating very clearly to the Chinese side, this isn't going to happen anymore. It needs to stop. Um, and that message was received, I think, by the Chinese, and that produced the agreement. Uh, was it received enough to balance off the clear gain that they seemed to get uh, from engaging in this activity?
0: What if there's a Sony-like incident directed from China to the United States? That episode wasn't deemed a cyber attack, it was deemed cyber vandalism. How does this agreement function in the case where something is defined, like Sony, say the same kind of thing happens again, but it's a cyber vandalism? What happens under the terms of this
2: agreement? I think the interesting thing about that is that, to some degree, I think the Sony attack actually helped facilitate the agreement we just signed for a couple of reasons. One, the Chinese recognized that U.S. attribution has clearly improved, right? The ability to determine where these attacks are coming from uh, has improved. Secondly, I think both the very strong public and private messages of how we intended to respond uh, in this case prevented them from further behavior. So for example, I think it's just in the same way they were able to shut down Sony's website, they very easily could have done uh, denial of service attacks on the servers that then showed the movie when they decided to release it online. They didn't do that. And I think primarily the reason they didn't is because they saw our response and our resolve in this case. How this agreement applies to something like that? Fortunately, we really haven't seen Chinese behavior in this aspect, you know, sort of cyber vandalism, if you will. Uh, their behavior has been about two categories: the traditional espionage and the economic cyber-enabled economic espionage.
0: And, and there have been discussions about North Korea and how they have used either portals or directly through China uh, to conduct attacks against the United States. How does this agreement? How will this agreement uh, deal with those situations?
2: I don't think the, direct, the agreement directly applies, but this is certainly a new pathway and area for us to be working with the Chinese on the North Korea problem. Uh, in so many ways, our discussions with them about area, other areas related to North Korea, especially with regard to the nuclear situation, have sort of – it's the same movie over and over again. You know, we're not making a lot of progress. Here's an area where I think we can work cooperatively and where the Chinese understand fundamentally that North Korea is creating a problem for them, and that's very important.
0: And I, and I want to focus a little bit more on North Korea as well and in a broader context. Uh, we know. Just a, a, another week or two, uh, the anniversary of, uh, of the 70th anniversary of the, the party, and we expect or anticipate some kind of, of North Korea action uh, to observe the date. Uh, what happened at the summit with President Xi and President Obama in relation to North Korea? Uh, what takeaways and where did we actually move forward in terms of China dealing with North Korea and the United States together?
2: My sense, uh, and I welcome Dr. Hart's view on this, uh, my sense is that uh, obviously the issue would have been thoroughly discussed between the two leaders. I was disappointed that there wasn't more public uh, you know, sort of release as to what we were going to do together. I would say this. I think it's very clear that the China-North Korea relationship is probably the worst it's ever been, or certainly uh, in competition for the worst it's ever been. There is opportunity for our two sides to be able to engage on this, especially on the issue of regime implosion scenarios and things like this. I think we have increasingly saw from the Chinese side a greater willingness uh, to recognize this as a problem, especially as the North Koreans, for example, continue to conduct nuclear tests again and again in the same area which is right on the border with China. China has concerns about the seismic ramifications of that behavior. Maybe we're gonna see another one here at the 70th anniversary, as you suggested. So there really is some fresh opportunities for us to be able to engage in this. It doesn't seem that the two sides were able to agree on anything necessarily, but I think it's an issue for us to work on collaboratively going forward.
3: I fully agree. You know, the red line that limits China's forward-leaning on North Korea is the fear of regime collapse, because they worry about what would happen. So, they are applying more sanctions, but China's northwest province, northeast provinces are also deepening their economic connections with North Korea. And part of the reason they're doing that is because they uh, want to pursue economic growth at home, but also they see maintaining at least some economic ties as critical to avoiding regime collapse. So to the extent that the United States can seek to address those fears and do some strategic planning and clarify what steps might be taken in that situation, make some kind of commitments to the Chinese on that issue, we could hopefully start to reassure those fears and therefore uh, open up a new willingness to lean even harder than they are doing now.
0: Thank you. And uh, talking a little bit more about the anti-terrorism and law and the foreign NGO law in China, uh, they're in the third reading I believe uh, the National People's Congress. Uh, Under the terrorism law it would allow China to, and I quote, access and examine any private data transmitted through the domestic internet without prior notice or court order so long as it were deemed necessary to facilitate An investigation into potential terrorist activities. The law basically means that U.S. companies must turn over sensitive cyber data uh, to the Chinese government and if that's not the case we'd love to hear a a, a countervailing view. Uh, According to Human Rights Watch under the NGO law, if adopted as currently drafted law will severely and arbitrarily restrict the ability of civil society organizations in China to access resources from and cooperate with international organizations in addition, it would place vague and overly broad restrictions on foreign organizations, including business associations, universities, and museums that wish to carry out valuable activities in China. That, again, from Human Rights Watch. Uh, how were these addressed during the, the the visit, the state visit, and what are the prospects for China uh, actually falling back or, or, or stepping back away from the conversations that they had here or moving forward uh, without any changes? Mr. Johnson, Dr. Hart.
3: On the cyber regulatory issues, I think it's important that we separate out two separate issues here. One of them is how do nations um, address national security concerns, conduct needed national security uh, information gathering activities within their own domestic networks. That's a contentious issue in the United States. That's a contentious issue in China. You have to balance national security needs with personal privacy needs. That could be a very interesting avenue of US-China dialogue. We haven't yet opened up an honest, frank dialogue on how do we, what are some best practices in that area? Are there any, is there any area of agreement between the US and China on that issue? That's just as contentious here as it is in China. The other piece is using national security legislation as a lever to force US companies to hand over source code and back out of Chinese markets. That is a commercial issue. It should be treated completely differently than the national security side of it. Uh, I believe those two issues are being conflated in a non-productive way in the Chinese legislative process and if we can pull them apart and address the valid legislative concern the valid regulatory concern in one channel and the market access concern in another I think that's the best way to make progress I didn't see my I didn't see that there were any public progress on those issues, there could have been more conversations behind closed doors. On the NGO law, that's something as as a think tank, as a think tank scholar who goes to China to conduct research activities, I would be directly impacted by that law when it comes down. That's something we're watching very closely. I am heartened by the fact that we have been able to review the law before it was implemented. Um, Chris and I were in Beijing a few weeks ago and we're, we're were brought to meet a, Nash- a Chinese congressional representative so that we could personally exchange views with Chinese legislators, voice our concerns, and ask questions, that openness gives me hope that this could go in a positive direction and we should engage as much as possible and take that openness and willingness to engage at face value. If it doesn't go in a positive direction, then every American university and think tank will have some decisions to make about how they might need to reshape their operations in China. And that is an issue that should be special in the human rights category because it's one that's regulating Americans directly. And so I would hope that um, American leaders would be keep paying special attention to that particular law, but yet um, you know, engaging and respecting and appreciating the openness that has been, that has been shown so far.
0: You talk about separating the two out, I believe, when we're talking about the national security uh, legislation, or at least the the need for national security to separate from market access to uh, privacy issues. Uh, You also use the term personal privacy needs. What is the view that the Chinese government has as it relates to personal privacy needs?
3: That's a much hotter issue in the United States than it is in China. You know, that's a, a key issue in our debates. In China, that is not a principle that is withheld quite as much as it is in the United States, but it would be a very interesting area for u s China discussion.
0: But I think it, the answer is there is no personal privacy needs viewed by the Chinese government to the people, and that's why we see this law. So how would this law, uh, when it comes to national security, uh, be changed for market access?
3: Well, you know there there are voices in the United States that would also argue that some of our intelligence agencies are, uh, overlooking some of the personal privacy needs, or not adequately balancing those in the national security equation, um, we, we we lose nothing by recognizing that every nation has a responsibility to secure its internet networks and to uh, make sure that there are no dangerous technology backdoors that could be used for cyber attacks. I think that's something that we can agree on with China, and based on that agreement, we could hopefully move forward on some bilateral or hopefully even multilateral. Mechanisms that would provide a set of rules that could hap- perhaps fill some of the regulatory need that these processes in China are trying to fill in a uh, apparently less, less helpful direction. And it is important to mention that this law, when you speak to people in Beijing, they say this law was a direct response to the Snowden revelations. So we cannot claim that China has no legitimate reason to be concerned about network security. I think the most positive place to start is to recognize that every nation in the world has a legitimate reason to be concerned about network security, and we do have that in common. And if we can use that as a building block for something that will guarantee everyone some degree of security, perhaps that would reduce the need for some of these problematic regulatory rules that are not just a China issue, it's an international issue.
0: Mr. Johnson.
2: I would just add that I think the the challenge with this is the way in which Chinese law uh, is increasingly being used as another tool of industrial policy. Uh, I think that's the real challenge that we face with these laws, uh, the national security law itself, the anti-terror law, uh, even the human rights law, uh, in some ways. China has understood the problem from the earlier period where they promoted a policy of so-called indigenous innovation. One of the challenges of indigenous innovation was that it created a lightning rod term around which people could rally. Uh, What we see uh, under the Xi Jinping administration in this area is a series of different tools, whether it's anti-monopoly use of the anti-monopoly law, uh, use of pricing investigations, use of these so-called lawfare um, approaches. Uh, they're using different tools so that nothing at any one time gets too much attention but the goal is the same which is to promote and advantage Chinese companies. I agree with Dr. Hart that you know the in, so, in many ways the the Snowden issue is the gift that keeps on giving for Chinese security agencies uh, and those inside the system who have wanted for some time to be able to prove if you will this is dangerous you know having these US firms be so involved in our in our critical infrastructure. So my point is that I my own sense is that no sort of amount of negotiation or discussion with the Chinese is fundamentally going to change their views on how they're thinking about their infrastructure.
0: So the, the visit's over, the summit's over, some agreements going forward, the, the bit negotiations continue. Uh, what, what are the next steps and the next big steps for the Asia pivot uh, out of this summit going forward? What do you anticipate seeing in terms of the overall uh, rebound strategy?
2: I think the main piece uh, and and the piece that's been lacking in the rebalance strategy so far is this economic and trade piece. And, And the key piece there is getting TPP done. Uh, That's the fundamental piece because what we have seen uh, has had the greatest effect, and Dr. Hart referenced this in her earlier comments, you know, why is it that China's even really talking about a BIT with us because, you know, they fundamentally understand that in a BIT they're going to have to give a lot more than we will to get compliant with with an agreement. It's because they watched Japan get into TPP and they understand fundamentally that that decision by Tokyo was much more a geostrategic decision than an economic one. It puts pressure on the Chinese, and as Dr. Hart said earlier, Really are. The best way to encourage the Chinese to move toward these high-standard agreements and so on is to You know conduct our own negotiations with partners who are ready uh, ready, you know from that point of view um, To be able to encourage the Chinese to move in that direction because they'll be economically disadvantaged if they don't Dr. Hart
3: I agree with that the problem that we've one of our biggest problems with the rebalance is that it's been viewed as a primarily military shift because when the president called for a balance, the Pentagon was ready to go. Do you think that's been
0: viewed primarily military here or seen over in the region? In
3: the Asia Pacific region, they see that the US military is there and the economic piece is lagging. And so many nations view this as a military shift and and an effort to contain China's rise. Um, There's growing concern that the US and China are engaged in some strategic rivalry in the region and that there's a, a spiraling security conflict. So if we can catch up, the economic side to the military side by finalizing the TPP, then that will hopefully demonstrate and improve the credibility that this, the re- American rebalance isn't just about strategic competition with China, it's about recognizing that this is the most economic dynamic region in the world and we want it to be there.
0: Thank you. And uh, th- what China has accomplished over the, the, the past uh, several years is truly remarkable. I mean, lifting 500 million people out of, out of poverty. Um, the, changes that we've seen from an economic standpoint it is remarkable Uh, and uh, I think there's not a a person here who would disagree with uh, the desire for this nation to become a great nation in a way that allows both both the United States and China in our relationship to not only flourish together but to to benefit the world because the world will benefit from a strong China the world will benefit from a strong United States Uh, and so I think sometimes the US attitude or policies toward China can Uh, come across as either finger-wagging or perhaps uh, telling people what they can and can't do. Uh, As Dr. Hart talked about, uh, the national interests, national security needs of a nation determine where they believe they need to go. Uh, But I think to have a, a, two global powers, to have a rising China that uh, is a responsible rising nation uh, to meet these needs and concerns that we have expressed today concerns over activities in the in the seas, concerns over activities in the economy, concerns over NGO laws and human rights and cyber issues and how we can deal with aggressive neighbors or regimes like North Korea together in a successful global economy really does determine whether China can reach the full potential of a of a great nation and I think we all hope that they can Uh, and uh, that's where this relationship needs to go I believe and so appreciate your your thoughts today, your testimony today and Obviously, we will continue working on this very important issue in the, the most important region uh, in terms of our relationship going forward. So, thank you very much, and uh, I got to read a few final, uh, final requirements today about uh, keeping the record open. So truly do appreciate both of you for your time and testimony today and for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business this Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Uh, and we ask the witnesses to respo- respond as promptly as possible. Responses will be made part of the record. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned. Thank you. Thanks. So?